Hello, hello, everyone, and welcome to the very first episode of the Book Club Podcast. I'm your host, Serena, and it's my job to break down books into bite-sized summaries and feed you consumable interpretations and examples from my life, as we don't always have the time to read all the wonderful books out there. So without further ado, let's get started. So for today's episode, I chose the book Atomic Habits by James Clear. Since the book was published in 2018, it quickly sold over 1 million copies and has become an international bestseller. The author draws on the most proven ideas from biology, psychology, and neuroscience to create an easy-to-understand guide for making good habits inevitable and bad habits impossible. The book consists of four chapters, which he refers to as the four laws of behavior change. They are make it obvious, make it attractive, make it easy, and make it satisfying. So before we dive into the four laws, let's talk about what atomic habit means. Atomic habit refers to a tiny change, a marginal gain, 1% improvement. And you might be thinking, improving by 1% doesn't seem that much. And yes, it isn't particularly noticeable or notable, but it can be far more meaningful, especially in the long run. Conversely, if you get 1% worse each day for a year, you'll decline nearly down to zero. So now, let's also break down what identity means and how it's related to habits. Let me ask you a question. Um, Are you one of those people that says, I'm terrible with directions, or I'm not a morning person, because I definitely am. And he actually addresses these norms attached to our identity. It does make sense when he says our identity emerges out of our habits. We're not born with preset beliefs. Every belief, including those about ourselves, are learned and conditioned through experience. And it makes sense to think that the more we repeat a behavior, the more we reinforce the identity associated with that behavior. And if we think about the word identity, it's originally derived from the Latin words essentitas, which means being, and identidem, which means repeatedly. So your identity literally means repeated beingness. And one of the quotes that I really liked in the section was that every action you take is a vote for the type of person you wish to become. And for me, that means... Every little thing that we do every day that we don't even notice anymore impacts the person we will become tomorrow. And with that, let's um, jump right into the first law, make it obvious section. Um, The process of building a habit can be divided into four simple steps. They are cue, craving, response, and reward. The cue triggers a craving which motivates a response, which provides a reward, which satisfies the craving, and ultimately becomes associated with the cue. 
Together, these four steps form a neurological feedback loop that ultimately allows you to create atomic habits. This cycle is known as the habit loop. And the first law is actually associated with the Q stage of the habit loop. I personally really enjoyed learning about the first law as it gave me clear and distinct habit tricks that I can implement in my daily life. For instance, you can kind of tell by the title that we need to make a habit as specific and obvious as possible. Um, So for example, if you want to start meditating, uh, you want to make sure your plan is specific enough so you follow through with it so that it doesn't seem too daunting and unclear that you just procrastinate and not end up doing it. So let's take the example of meditating. You want to make sure that you want to do it um, maybe after brushing your teeth at 7 a.m. on your couch in the living room for 15 minutes um, by opening the app Headspace or Calm. And the cue is that you brush your teeth and you immediately know that after this you will do the meditation. And you have made your habit obvious and specific enough that it has a time and a location. So the next morning, you don't have to wonder, oh, which app am I going to use? Or how long am I going to do it? Or where am I going to do it? This is all pre-planned and it's specific so that all you have to do is just show up and do it. The cue is a regular habit that you do every day. So with enough practice, you can... Pick up on the cues that predict certain outcomes without consciously thinking about it. And automatically your brain encodes these lessons learned through experience. And we can't always explain what it is we're learning. But learning is happening all along the way in our brain. And our ability to notice the relevant cues in a given situation is the foundation for every habit we have. Over time, the cues um, that sparks habits become so common that they're essentially invisible. For example, we put our phone in our pocket without even realizing it, or we put the remote control next to our TV or couch, um, totally on autopilot. Um, and I also want to give another example that was in the book, which I thought was pretty funny. Um, There was this woman who used to be a preschool teacher and she had switched to corporate job. And even though she was now working with adults, her old habits would kick in and she kept asking co-workers if they had washed their hands after going to the bathroom. And you know, it just reminds me of the saying, old habits die hard. Um, Another effective trick that's mentioned in the book is pointing and calling. It is super effective as it raises the level of awareness from a non-conscious habit to a more conscious level. So for instance, you might already be doing this. Whenever we're preparing to walk out the door for a trip, we verbally call out the most essential items in the packing list. For example, I usually just call out if I have my passport, if I have my wallet and keys, all those essential items that needs to be packed. Um, 
Later in the section, he also mentions a habit scorecard strategy, which is where you list all your activities that you do ever since you wake up. And to also determine whether um, that certain activity is a good behavior, a good habit or not. For example, the list can go on like this. Uh, waking up, turning on alarm, turning off alarm, <laughs> checking my phone, going to the bathroom, weighing myself, taking a shower, etc. Um, I actually did this exercise myself and writing them out helped me see more clearly some of the habits that I had that I didn't even realize since I do them so subconsciously every every day. And fortunately, there were some good ones. Um, for instance, you know, I try to make smoothies every morning, work out during lunch, read at night, that kind of stuff. But there were inevitably some bad ones that I really needed to let go. For example, um, starting off my day with checking social media. And actually, willpower is the highest in the morning. My attention and time is being hijacked. Therefore, I started putting my phone in a different room, so it's harder to access in the morning. Overall, I would say it was a pretty beneficial exercise that I feel like we need to do maybe once a month or as often as we want, just to kind of see what kind of good habits that we want to keep up with and what kind of bad habits that we need to let go. And with that, our first law concludes. Um, and let's move on to the second law. Um, the second law is make it attractive. The more attractive the opportunity is, the more likely it is to become habit-forming. And habits are actually dopamine driven feedback loop and if every behavior that is highly habit forming for example eating junk food playing video games browsing social media is associated with higher levels of dopamine and when it comes to habits the key takeaway is that dopamine is actually released not only when we experience pleasure but also when we anticipate it and interestingly, gambling addicts have a dopamine spike right before they place a bet and not after they win. Um, the book includes another interesting story about an electrical engineering student in Dublin who enjoyed watching Netflix like the rest of us, but he also knew that he should exercise more like the rest of us. And... He put his engineering skills to use and he hacked his stationary bike and connected it to his laptop and TV. And then he wrote a computer program that would allow Netflix to run only if he was cycling at a certain speed. So if he slows down for too long, whatever show he was watching would pause until he started pedaling again. We don't have to go to that extreme to start a good habit. But um, he was actually employing what is called a temptation bundling strategy, which works by linking an action we want to do with an action we need to do. So in his case, he bundled watching Netflix, which is the thing he wanted to do, with uh, riding his stationary bike, which is something he needed to do. 
And I'm not sure if you guys noticed this before, but businesses are actually masters at temptation bundling. For instance, um, the American broadcasting company, more commonly known as ABC, they have this thing called TGIT. So every Thursday, the company would air three shows created by the screenwriter Shonda Rhimes, Grey's Anatomy, Scandal, and How to Get Away with Murder. They encourage viewers to make popcorn, drink red wine, and enjoy the evening. And the brilliance of the strategy is that ABC was associating things they needed viewers to do, which is, you know, watching their shows with activities that they already wanted to do, like relaxing, drinking wine, eating popcorn. That's why over time, people started associating ABC with feeling relaxed and entertained. So we can also implement the temptation bundling strategy in our lives too. We just got to know the formula. And the formula is after we do our current habit, we will do the habit we need. After we do the habit we need, we will do the habit we want. For instance, say we want to check social media, but we also need to exercise more. Then the formula would be after we pull out our phones, we'll do 10 push-ups. And after doing 10 push-ups, we can check social media. The hope is that eventually we'll look forward to doing 10 push-ups because it means we get to check social media. And doing the thing we need to do means we get to do the thing we want to do. <laughs> I know that sounds a little bit confusing, but I'm sure you get what I mean. Um, I implemented this in my own life by only working out before lunch so that after my workout, I get to eat. And I look forward to eating my lunch so much that doing the workout doesn't seem so bad. And I actually kind of look forward to it now. I think you can get really creative with the strategy because I can think of millions of ways to implement this in my life. And it's super exciting. For instance, if I want to go out with my friends, I'll do something productive before that. I'll maybe finish reading 30 pages of a certain book or do laundry or um, clean a house or something like that. And doesn't it usually just feel more rewarding to do something you want and have fun after you do something productive? It just feels that much better. All right, so now let's move on to a smaller section of the second law that talks about reprogramming your brain to enjoy hard habits. And the key to that is changing just one word. You don't have to, you get to. For example, you don't have to wake up early for work. You get to wake up early for work. You get to make another sales call for your business. And the funny thing is that both versions of reality are true. You know, you, you have to do those things and you also get to do them. There's a story about a man who uses a wheelchair and when asked if it was difficult being confined, he responded, I'm not confined to my wheelchair. I am liberated by it. And if it wasn't for my wheelchair, I would be bed bound and never able to leave my house. The shift in perspective 
kind of completely transformed how he lived each day. And I love his response. It's just so humbling that people who seem to have less than us are more happy with their lives. Then you start to think to yourself that maybe we should be more grateful with what we have and how we get to do a lot of things. And with that, our second section concludes. Um, and let's take a quick little break and we can continue with the third law. The third section starts with an amazing story. It's a story about a professor at the University of Florida who divided his film photography students into two groups, the quantity group and the quality group. The quantity group would be graded solely on the amount of work they produced. And on the final day of class, he tallies the number of photos submitted by each student. Um, 100 photos would be an A, 90 photos would be a B, 80 photos a C, etc. And the quality group would be graded solely on the excellence of their work. So they would only need to produce one great photo, but that photo had to be nearly perfect. So what do you think? Which group do you think produced the best photos? I thought it would be the quality group since they had to produce only one good quality photo. But it turns out it was the quantity group. As we dive into the explanation of why, during the semester, the students were busy taking photos, experimenting with composition and lighting, testing out different methods in the darkroom, learning from their mistakes. But... The quality group was just sitting around speculating about perfection. And at the end of the day, they really didn't have much to show. So it just um, proves the idea that um, it's so easy to get bogged down trying to find the optimal plan for change. And you, you've probably seen on the internet, um, it's so common to see like the fastest way to lose weight the best program to build muscle, the perfect idea for a side hustle, etc. And we're so focused on figuring out the best approach that we never get around to taking action. And it's about repetition, you know, the small baby steps instead of trying to force something to happen in a short amount of time. The author also refers to this as the difference between being in motion and taking action. These two ideas sound really similar, but they're actually not the same at all. When we're in motion, we're planning and strategizing and learning. Those are all good things, but they don't produce results. Action, on the other hand, is the type of behavior that will deliver an outcome. It's important to focus on taking action and not being in motion. It's very much helpful to brainstorm and to be in motion, but right after that, let's try to take an action. Another important point in this section is not only to do easy things. I mean, the idea is to make it as easy as possible in the moment to do those things that pay off in the long run. For instance, 
When deciding where to start a new habit, it's best to choose a place that's already along the path of your daily routine. You're more likely to go to the gym if it's on your way to work because stopping doesn't add much friction to your lifestyle. Or better yet, you can maybe choose an apartment that has a gym or is next to the park so you can go for a morning run. Now let's talk about the two-minute rule. The author suggests that when you start a new habit, it should take less than two minutes to do it. First two minutes should be as easy as possible. So let's say you want to run a marathon. That seems kind of hard, right? Um, running a 5K is super hard. Walking 10,000 steps is kind of overwhelming. But walking 10 minutes is easy. And putting on your running shoes is super easy. So your goal would be to put on your running shoes. And this might seem like a trick to some people, but you need to know that the real goal is to do more than just two minutes. Um, after you put on your shoes, you will actually want to exercise. You would want to go for that run. So next time, just try to implement the two-minute rule and see how it works for yourself. And with that, our third section ends. And we will move on to our fourth and final section, make it satisfying. So uh, the fourth law starts with an idea that you are more likely to repeat a behavior when the experience is satisfying. Any human brain evolves to prioritize immediate rewards over delayed rewards. When you repeat a certain action for a long time, early on, it's all sacrifice. You've gone to the gym a few times, but, you know, you, you don't get super fit or super fast right away, at least not in any noticeable sense. It's only months later, once you shed a few pounds or your arms gain some definition, that it becomes easier to exercise. Um, and in the beginning, you do need a reason to stay on track. This is why immediate rewards are essential. They keep you excited while delayed rewards accumulate in the background. And it can be challenging to stick with habits like no junk foods this month or no impulse purchases. But to achieve that, we need to make avoidance visible. You can open a savings account maybe and label it for something you want. Um maybe a pair of shoes. So whenever you pass on a purchase, put the amount of money in the account. If you skipped your morning coffee, transfer $5 to that saving account. And if you pass on a month of Netflix, move that $10 over. It's like creating a loyalty program for yourself. And the immediate reward of seeing yourself save money towards that new pair of shoes feels a lot better than being deprived. So we're making it obvious um, that we are sticking to our habit and that we are saving money and it's just rewarding in the end to buy the thing that you want because it came from your good habits. And the author also mentions the cardinal rule of behavior change, which says, you know, what's immediately rewarded is repeated and what's immediately punished is avoided. So that's why it's important to find ways to reward your good behaviors immediately because 
it definitely increases the odds that that behavior will be repeated next time. Another cool trick that is recommended by the author was using a habit tracker. It's a simple way to measure whether you did a habit and the most basic format is to get a calendar and cross off each day you stick with your routine. For instance, if you meditate on Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, each of those days gets an X. And as time rolls by, the calendar becomes a record of your habit streak. Um, Jerry Seinfeld reportedly uses a habit tracker too um, to stick with his streak of writing jokes. And in a documentary called Comedian, he explains that his goal is simply to never break the chain of writing jokes every day. I really like that mindset. Don't break the chain is a powerful mantra and that is the ultimate goal of habit building, not breaking the chains and doing it repeatedly every day. And one study of more than 1,600 people found that those who kept a daily food log lost twice as much weight as those who did not. So the small mere act of tracking a behavior can spark the urge to change it. So these habit trackers and logs are kind of holding you accountable for your actions and seeing if you're actually sticking to your habits. And once you know where to get the data, just make sure to review them each week or each month. And the author also employs two primary modes of reflection and review. Um, in December, he performs an annual review to reflect on the previous year by answering three questions. What went well this year? What didn't go so well this year? And what did I learn? And six months later, when summer rolls around, he conducts an integrity report that uh, report also answers three questions. What are the core values that drives my life and work? And how am I living and working with integrity right now? And the last one is how can I set a higher standard in the future? These two reports don't take long, just a few hours per year. And it helps us reflect on how our habits are helping us become the type of person we wish to become. And never reviewing your habits is like never looking in the mirror. And you might not be aware of small, easily fixable flaws, such as a spot on your shirt. And there's just too little feedback. So periodic reflection and reviews, like viewing yourself in the mirror. And um, he also advises not to cling too tightly to one identity as you become too brittle. You lose that one thing and you can lose yourself. And the key to mitigating these losses of identity is actually to redefine yourself in a way that you get to keep important aspects of your identity, even if your particular role changes. So for example, if, you, if your identity is an athlete, your identity could be changed to the type of person who is mentally tough and loves a physical challenge instead. Change happens constantly in our lives and everything is impermanent. So it's very important to periodically check to see if our old habits and beliefs 
are still serving us. And with that, our fourth and final chapter ends. Thank you so much for listening to my very first episode. I had so much fun recording it. And if you have any feedback or any book recommendations, uh, feel free to um, leave as a comment or a review. And I encourage you to start a new habit today with the help of uh, numerous new tricks and tips that you learned from this episode. And um, I'll see you guys in the next one. Bye.